0: Let's ask for the Lord's help in understanding his word this morning. Father God, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to see you and to hear from you this morning with all that you have caused Isaiah to write in, in this chapter, in the, these verses. Pray that they would not just, that we wouldn't just hear and see them, but that they would change us, that we can glorify you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. All right, so if you haven't already done so, please open your device or that kind of, you know, book thing, you know, uh, to Isaiah chapter 42. We're going to be kicking off in verse 18, picking up where Josh left us a couple of weeks ago. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we got a whole bunch back here by the sound booth. Nate will be happy to point you to them as he's twisting the knobs, so... Please grab one. We always encourage you to read the word along with us just to make sure we're not telling you something that isn't in there. So So our bodies are pretty amazing creations, wouldn't you think? That kind of makes sense because we have a pretty amazing creator. And among the gifts that he's given us in these bodies are the five senses. Our sight, our hearing, taste, touch, and smell. Of course, we learn a lot about the world that God created through these senses. And I would venture to say that most of us rely very heavily on our sight and our hearing. Now, something common to both seeing and hearing is that our eyes and our ears are both designed by God to pick up certain types of waves. The entire electromagnetic spectrum includes gamma rays, X-rays, ultraviolet light, visible light, you know, like the colors of the rainbow, infrared, microwaves, and radio waves. Our eyes are only sensitive to visible light. In other words, our eyes really only pick up a very, 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 very small portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. And yet, we see an incredibly broad array of colors and shades. Similarly, our ears also pick up only a limited portion of the range of sound waves. And like with light, we still perceive an incredibly broad array of soundscapes within that limited spectrum. Of course, the information coming into our brains from our eyes and our ears needs to be processed right? We need to make sense of what we're taking in. Now, let's consolidate this business of seeing and hearing and processing into the word perception. And like it or not, our perception impacts how we interact with the world. You know, a pessimist and an optimist will perceive the same events in different ways. Similarly, a Christian and a non-believer would be expected to perceive the same events in different ways. As we dive in today's verses, we'll quickly see how the Spirit speaking through Isaiah uses the familiar concepts of seeing and hearing to contrast a world-focused perception to a kingdom-focused perception. So let's begin with Isaiah 42, verse 18. Hear, you deaf... And look, you blind, that you may see. Now, as Bill would say, this phrase shimmers between the then and the now. Certainly, the people of Israel at the time needed to be made aware of their own perception problem. But our sinful tendencies as humans don't change as the centuries pass. So we need to pay attention as well. And do you dig that irony? Here, you deaf... How is a deaf person supposed to make themselves hear? How can a blind person make themselves see? They can't. But Isaiah is trying to awaken the people to their own ignorance of their actual spiritual condition. You see, they've they've lost their kingdom-focused perception. And this isn't the first time that Isaiah has used this type of language about seeing and hearing. And not surprisingly, Jesus himself uses similar language when talking to his disciples about his parables and even quotes from Isaiah uh, in, in Matthew chapter 13. Listen to this. This is why I speak to them, he's talking about the people, in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, and this is Isaiah chapter 6, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see what their eyes, with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their heart. And turn, and I would heal them. Jesus goes on to say, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Now, as we continue on in the verses, Isaiah is not just warning other ordinary people. In verse 19, he says, Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? Now, while the term servant can refer to God's people in general, coupling that term with my messenger and my dedicated one, in this case, further directs the words towards the priests. We hear a similar tone as Jesus replies, to one of the Pharisees in John chapter 3. And remember, these were the religious leaders who were supposed to be teaching the people about God, right? So speaking to the Pharisees, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this religious leader he was talking to was apparently going through the motions of religion, but not truly living unto God. Clearly, the priests in Isaiah's time had not been living out and teaching the Word of God because the people as a whole had drifted from God. The people and the priests have lost their kingdom-focused perception. Jesus continued to take issue with the religious leaders on this subject in other places in the New Testament. For example, Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now, as we remembered during our recent Resurrection Day services, despite all the writings of Moses and the prophets that the Pharisees were familiar with, the spiritual leaders who should have recognized Jesus from all they saw and heard of him in their day, Were deaf and blind to who he was. Let's hear more from the New Testament, John chapter 9. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They, the Pharisees, said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. We don't like to hear about our blindness and our deafness. And indeed, we see it in our own time. Despite the clear evidence for Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, people still don't recognize him as Lord and Savior. And they don't perceive their own need for salvation. Isaiah continues, He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. This verse seems to further implicate the church leaders. Again, we see Jesus point out these same perception problems to the Jewish leaders of his day. Listen to John chapter 8. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, the pattern of correction that we see in Scripture shows that God clearly warns his people to repent. And he does so in many ways over a period of time to give them a chance to change. But if even the church leaders aren't perceiving those warnings, look out. One could argue that this is the same thing about church leaders in our day, as we see increasing polarization among believers, extreme legalism on the one hand that shows no grace or love or compassion, extreme lawlessness on the other hand, that sees grace and forgiveness as an entitlement instead of mercy and makes a mockery of God's holiness. God warns us in his word about such extremes should we take the time to read and hear it. And the effects of those extremes are observable in the world around us and in the church if we take the time to notice, to see them, to hear them. Verse 21 continues in this way. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. See, the challenge for Israel then and us now is how do we perceive the world? So the perception problem for Israel wasn't because they didn't have the opportunity to gain a kingdom-focused perception. They had the law, right? When they lived using it to give them kingdom-focused perception, they were blessed. We see that time and again in the Old Testament. This magnified the law and made it glorious. While he's made provision for forgiveness of sins, he also is a holy and righteous God and will not allow his holy nature to be trivialized. As we learned a few weeks ago, that means correction for his people, and just punishment for others. And see, this also magnifies his law and makes it glorious. How much more does this apply to us who have the complete canon of Scripture? We see in the following passages how he's brought correction to his people to spur them to repentance. In verse 22, but this is a people Plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to stay, say, restore. See, rather than experiencing the blessings and freedom of walking faithfully in God's ways, God has let his people feel some of the consequences of their sins. They still have value to him. But in pursuing the pleasures of sin, instead of the kingdom of God, they are finding themselves trapped by those things they thought would bring happiness. That's another bit of irony, isn't it? Sin seems to promise freedom and pleasure and ends up being a prison. Adam and Eve's eyes, of course, were opened up all right to their own nakedness. Continuing in verse 23, "'Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey?' Isaiah is making it very clear that it was the Lord who allowed Israel to feel the consequences of their disobedience. It was against the Lord that they had sinned. Verse 25, so he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. As evidenced elsewhere in Scripture, God begins his reproof with gentle correction. If we don't perceive that, he continues to bring the heat, right? To try to get our attention. More often than not, at least for me, it takes a big stick upside of our heads to really get our attention and turn us to repentance. And since we consistently fail on our own to perceive our deviation from God's ways, He loves us so much that he took it upon himself to make a way back. Now in chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of times in my life, it feels like life is trying to overwhelm me like a river. And here's our creator promising not to let that happen. So whatever trials you're enduring, whatever temptations you're facing, God is there with you through them and will bring you ultimately to himself. That, friends, should be tremendously comforting. That, friends, should jumpstart our hearts back toward a kingdom-focused perception, looking and listening for how God is working to sustain us through our present trials. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Now, from a historical context, what's in view here is God's sovereignty and his proven ability to protect his people. This in spite of their tendency to look elsewhere for help. See, if we study the Old Testament writings, we see another repeating pattern, right? The people are threatened by an outside army, and they'll do one of two things. They'll either trust God to save them, and he'll divert that army somewhere else, as indicated by this passage, or They don't trust God, and ultimately they get overrun. Now, keep something in mind. This diversion God's talking about here isn't a sacrifice for sins. When God diverted an outside army from Israel to attack another nation, that nation was deserving of punishment. So God's being consistent with his just nature. Continuing on in verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Again, this Evidence shows more of the shimmering nature of prophecy. The Spirit, through Isaiah, is offering reassurance that God will bring back his exiled people. But there's also a foreshadowing of Christ's work to gather all of God's people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. Listen to chapter 8, or verse 8, excuse me. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. In other words, it seems that those of God's people who seem worthless in the eyes of the world are those who can bear witness to his truth and his workings in the world. That's us, folks. We see and hear what others don't and can't. Why? Because of faith in and through Christ. And it's not because of any great perception on our part. Let's recall Jesus' words from John that we heard earlier, right? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And how is that hearing enabled? Well, John chapter 6 says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Pretty cool, huh? Let's see where we are. Okay. Verse 9 of 43. All the nations gather together, and the people assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Let them hear and say it is true. Isaiah is now drawing a contrast between God and his people And the idol-worshipping nations, despite all their pomp and boasting, none of these idol-worshipping nations can point to any work or prophecy emanating from their idols that shows them to be real. Whereas the evidences for God are overwhelming. And if this sounds like Josh's sermon from a few weeks ago, it's because idol worship seems to be a big problem for us humans. So it's a frequent topic in Scripture. Now, if we think of an idol as anything that we elevate in our hearts above God, we should start to see all kinds of idols in our lives. Some of these, we don't even realize that we've made them idols. Well, like what, you may ask? Okay, how about families? Yes, they're important, but what place do they take in our heart compared to God? Jesus makes an interesting statement in Luke chapter 9 in that regard. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What about church? It's pretty clear from Paul's letters and from the first few chapters of John's Revelation, that individual churches were fraught with problems right from the start. Why then would we assume that our church, or any church in our day and age, wouldn't have its share of problems? And yet, we know of any number of modern churches whose people have demonstrated that it was more important to protect the entity or the church leader than to protect the reputation of Christ. What about politicians and celebrities? Do we really think that some charismatic individual is the answer to our problems? Are we really willing to overlook serious character flaws because someone promises to fix things we fear? Or someone seems like an otherwise good person? Or they claim godliness? And yet we elevate some of these people to savior-like status. There is only one savior. Savior. Jesus Christ. How about money? Yeah, it's the obvious one, sure. But how do we treat it? How do we treat it when we have little of it? How do we treat it when we have a comfortable amount of it? What about accolades? Is it more important for us to be noticed or to quietly serve the kingdom? How about time? Most of us have jobs or house chores and other obligations that eat up a good amount of our waking hours. Where do we invest the rest of it? And don't misunderstand here, rest is part of it. We need to rest. But that still doesn't mean we need to think about how we're investing our time. I'd better stop there. Go back to verse ten of chapter forty-three. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant who I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am He. Before me no god was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God, and henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? The Lord is appealing to His redemptive history with the people of Israel. If they would only look to their own history and recall all that God did for them. His preeminence would shine forth. Their faith would be reawakened since it's a faith based on what God has done and who He is. It's not some blind, hopeful wish for the future. We would be wise to do the same. Isaiah continues, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. This is one of those passages that's a little bit hard to understand the way it's phrased. But there's humor here. God's using the Babylonians to bring about the exile of his people for their growth and redemption. But he calls these so-called conquerors fugitives and will in turn use the Chaldeans to chase the Babylonians back to their homeland in the very ships of conquest that the Babylonians are so proud of. With that ironic twist and God's increasing declarations of just who he is, He's strongly telling his people that whatever happens, he is ultimately in charge. Isaiah continues, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. To give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Ah, here's a foreshadowing of Christ to come. Rather than continue in the pattern of rebellion and redemption, conquest and freedom, faithlessness and faithfulness, blindness and sight, deafness and hearing, that Israel has been stuck in, we see allusion, allusions here to John the Baptist. Preparing the way for Christ himself, the new thing. God is refocusing his people on his kingdom in a big way. He's also preparing them for what to look and listen for. Did you catch that? He's preparing them for what to look and listen for when the new thing comes to pass. We also see a picture of of wild beasts honoring God. It seems to me a parallel to the wild hearts of his people finally settling into their God-designed purpose to praise God and enjoy him forever. And to do that, to praise God and enjoy him forever, requires a kingdom-focused perception. Because we start to see his hand at work in every situation, We hear the whisperings of His Spirit in even the darkest of places. See, the truth is, all of us have trouble seeing and hearing. That's probably why seeing and hearing comes up so frequently in Scripture. And that trouble affects our ability to see and hear from our God who loves us dearly. Of course, some of us deliberately shut our our eyes and our ears to Him and rely on what we perceive to be our own abilities. That's that world-focused perception. Others of us forget to open our eyes and ears to God's promises, and fail to step into all that God has for us. That's also a world-focused perception. But that brings up a question, of course, how do we see through his eyes and hear with his ears? How do we gain kingdom-focused perception? Well, we do this by studying scripture to understand how God looks at things. We then apply his way of looking at things to the circumstances that we encounter. We do this by praying and asking God to give us his eyes to see and his ears to hear in those circumstances we do this by listening to trusted and mature brothers and sisters to hear what might what God might say through them now if that sounds like a lot to take in it is and it isn't see remember how often certain key themes come up in scripture to give us a clue to God's kingdom perception themes like love God and love your neighbor do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Repent and believe. Now that's all well and good. That's all kind of ethereal here. But let's consider some, a real world challenge. Something that we deal with here in Colorado Springs pretty much daily. Homelessness. It's a problem in many other cities as well. What happens when we look at homeless folks with a kingdom-focused perception? First, we should recognize that as human beings, they are imago Dei. They're created in the image of God. As such, they have intrinsic value. See, a world-focused perspective would say that they don't have any value. They're not contributing to society. Second, with a kingdom focused perspective, we should recognize that they are each unique individuals with unique stories as to how they ended up on the streets. A world focused perception would seek to dehumanize them by lumping them probably into one of two camps, right? They're either mentally unstable or substance abusers. Third, a kingdom focused perception would seek to provide them with spiritual and physical care. And I'm not talking about the one-and-done trip to the rescue mission on Thanksgiving, which is often more about making us feel good than actually serving their needs. See, a world-focused perspective would leave it to others or some agency to provide care. Fourth, a kingdom-focused perspective would apply prayer and wisdom in determining how, when, and what kind of care to provide. See, we can't save every homeless person, right? A world-focused perspective might give some thought to those things, but more often not, will at most give some spare change to the panhandler on the corner and forget about that person immediately thereafter. I hope you can see Scripture informing those kingdom-focused perspective examples that I've just provided. Obviously, that's a there's a whole lot more on that subject that we could talk about, but the idea was to give you that sense of how to apply scripture and looking at things through a kingdom-focused perspective. The reality is that we often have better kingdom-focused perception in some areas of our lives than others. As we grow in the Lord, that perception should get clearer and broader the many colors and shades and sounds that are the beautiful masterpieces and symphonies of God's work in the hearts of His people should become more evident. Let's pray that the Spirit would continue to sharpen our spiritual vision and unmute our spiritual ears so that we could know, enjoy, serve, worship, and love our Redeemer more with each day. It's a thought which reminds me of these words You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray. Father God, when we're overwhelmed with the things of this world and circumstances just come at us like, like a flood, like a raging river, it's so easy to lose perspective on your kingdom. When we look at people and their circumstances, it's easy to fall back on worldly perception. But Lord, we ask you today, through your Spirit, to give us your eyes to see and your ears to hear, that we can start to perceive more and more of your hand at work in the world, to look at circumstances through your eyes, how your kingdom might be expanded through your gospel. How we can minister to the hurting and the lost. How we can see them through your eyes. How we can hear their hurting through your ears and respond as you would respond with love and compassion. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.